let me just read to you 1 Samuel 2, 27, just to get a start. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Now we'll go through this in a minute. We'll, get, we'll move through the passage. But as we move into, we've been in 1 Samuel, and we've seen that these days are really dark. People are doing what is right in their own eyes, and priests are doing what is right in their own eyes. Eli and his house, there's sin in the entrance of the temple, and there's sin on the inside of the temple as they intimidate people and as they're immoral outside the temple. And the only blade of grass we've been able to see in the cracks, as we preached the sermon a few weeks ago, remember the grass that was in the crack? Uh, there's only one blade of grass out there, and it belongs to Elkanah and Hannah. Now, we've seen them regularly worship, worshiping the Lord in the midst of all the darkness, and we've seen them ask the Lord for a child, and they received this child, and then they made him over to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life. So this question comes up. I can still hear R.G. Lee saying this, where is God? I can hear him saying that in a sermon that he preached years, you know, probably in years and years ago. Where is God in the darkness? Where is God when there's sin everywhere? These men are harassing God's people. These men are sinning before God's people. Where's a man of God to come from in the midst of all of this? Is our God a God who is like silver and gold? Is our God made by men's hands and does he have a mouth but it doesn't speak? Does he have eyes that he cannot see and does he have ears that cannot hear? Where is God? And in verse 27 it says this, Then a man of God came to Eli. Mark that down. A man of God came to Eli. Not to Hophni and Phinehas, but to Eli. God is sending his word from a man we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he goes to. We don't even know his name. But here's a man of God coming, and what does he say? Thus says the Lord, and it's a message of judgment. And so in verses 27 through 28, we're going to see the invasion of God's word and God's grace. Here's this man of God coming, and he rehearses God's grace to Eli. Look at verse 27. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Verse 28. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Do you not understand, Eli? Your father Aaron was chosen in this time of Egypt, this Egyptian bondage. As they came out, he was chosen to be the priestly line. I chose you. I selected you, one out of 12, to be my priest. This is a high thing. This is a wonderful office. Only below the rank of the king who's still yet to come into existence. It's a gracious thing to serve the Lord. And these men, they were to go up to my altar, he said. They are to offer incense. And they are to bear the people on uh, the ephod. And we could say that when we talk about going up to the altar, remember that's taking up those sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. That 
burning incense is the picture of intercessory prayer that they offered for the people and then burying the people on the, the ephod. That's that vestment with those 12 stones representing the people of God before God himself and on the sleeve as well. So they're burying God's people up and doing this work. It's a gracious thing to be selected. It's a wonderful thing to do this service. And not only that, we see in verse 28 that they were uh, part of those sacrifices with, with their provision for their food. Remember, they could take the breast and they could take the thigh and they would eat that. That was part of their provision. And then, uh, what's something that our text doesn't tell us, but we also know from the Bible, is that the pe- these uh, priests lived off the people's tithes and the priests also were provided uh, cities by God to live in. So this is a a wonderful word of grace. Then we see the invasion of the word of God in charges of sin. This man of God comes and charges Eli with sin. And there's two charges. There's no excuse for Hophni and Phinehas, right? But did you see the charge? It's a charge of greed, and it comes not to Hophni and Phinehas. It comes to Eli. It doesn't say, why do Hophni and Phinehas scorn my sacrifices? Look at verse 29. It says, why do you, Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice? And why do you kick at my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling? You, it's plural, and Eli's included with the boys. But you see, I'm sort of pull for people sometimes. <laughs> I sort of pull for, don't you kind of pull for people? I'm kind of pulling for Eli. I see him doing benedictions for Hannah and Elkanah and Hannah. And I see him training little Samuel. And I'm sort of pulling for this guy. But I want you to, tell, I want you to see that God includes him in the sins of his sons. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering? And the word kick there, it's an act of defiance. This is looking down their noses at God's sacrifices. We've talked about this before. You know, we talk about God hates sin. Well, these are God haters. And we, man, it's hard to throw Eli in there, but Eli is hating God's sacrifices by doing what he's doing. They're acting like what God, that God's sacrifices belong to them. And that's greed. Taking what does not belong to you, stealing more meat than what is allotted to them, that is greed. These are reprehensible things. They forgot about the grace. They forgot about the divine calling, and they were not happy with what God was giving to them. So the first charge is greed. The second charge is this, honoring your sons above me. Verse 29 why? Why do you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Again, it's Eli. Eli's included. You're honoring your sons more than me. And you're making yourself fat along with the boys. Eli has honored his sons more than the Lord. And he did this first by mildly rebuking them. Remember, they, the first note of finding out what these guys are doing in the front of the temple and inside the temple, the first thought, the first time they, he knew about it, should have stopped it. 
Should have stopped. Should have replaced them with godly men. Stop them. Replace them with godly men. Yeah, it would have hurt him. It probably would have hurt him. He's their daddy. Would have hurt him, but it would have been the right thing to do. He would have honored God instead of the boys. And the second thing it appears to be doing here is he's eating these cuts of meat with his sons. So it says, by making yourselves fat. It's not just Hophni and Phinehas who are being made fat by eating the wrong cuts of meat, but Eli's joining in with them. And so by not removing the sons from office and by eating this meat with his sons, he's honoring them above the Lord. And these are heinous sins before Yahweh or before the Lord. Now, in order to make the application here, I want to reach down to verse 30. We've read it there, but I want to read it to you. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed or disdained. That's a fixed principle in the kingdom of God. Those who honor me, I will honor. and Those who despise me, I will disdain. The world will honor those who go in its direction. The world will choose to honor its sons and daughters before God. The world will love family and love blood and love pleasure before God. But the Lord will honor you if you honor Him. Write that in your mind. Write that down. The Lord will honor you if you honor Him. If you seek Him first, you will find Him. If you seek His glory, if that is your goal, you will know what it means to be honored by God. If you seek His pleasure, then you will know His pleasure. But if you despise the Lord, and if you honor someone or something or some pleasure or some job before the Lord, there's going to be a day of reckoning. It may not happen in this life, but there will be a day of reckoning when you receive a just and exact punishment for holding God in contempt. You know, most of us know the story about Eric Little. And, um, you know, it's really good to read about it instead of just watch the movie because when you read about it, you understand, you, you get a little bit better information because you, you always need to remember movies take, um, what do they call it, liberties? <laughs> liberties? Literary license, right? And so he is born in China to the son of missionaries and he comes back to Scotland for a period of time and he becomes one of the premier soccer players and he's a world-class sprinter. In fact, he was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. And when he found out that the finals for the 100-meter dash were on Sunday, he determined that he was not going to run because the, the, the Sabbath day, Christian Sabbath, is on Sunday, and he would not run. He was convinced by Scripture, and he would not run on the Lord's day. So he told everybody of that. And immediately, he was denounced in the newspapers as a traitor to his country. I don't think the movie shows that. I don't think the movie says that they denounced him as a traitor. Now, we see him in the movie talking to the Prince of Wales, but we don't see him being coerced by the Prince of Wales to compromise. But he wouldn't compromise. He put God ahead of his country. He put God ahead of his own reputation. He honored God first and eventually what happens is is they find a race for him to run the finals are not going to be or none of the the uh, uh, heats are going to be on yeah thank you my track track friend they're not going to be on Sunday 
And so he's going to run the 400-meter dash. And now, just by the way, running the 400-meter dash, not trained for it. He's a 100- and 200-meter guy. He's not trained for the longer run. We all know what that means. His best time in the 400-meter dash is two seconds off the world record. And so he lines up to run the 400-meter dash, and a member of the Britain, Britain's training staff came over to him, and he put a little paper, piece of paper in his hand. It's really cool. The movie makes it being an American runner who gives him this piece of paper but is actually a member of Britain's training staff. And it says, 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. He wadded it up, put it in his hand, and he ran the fastest 400-meter dash the world's ever seen at that point. He set the world record. <laughs> he, he took his gold medal, and not, not, not in the same day, but you get my meaning. He took his medal, he, he uh, loaded his bags up, and he went to China to be a missionary. And when he left, there were over a 1,000 people who didn't get to say goodbye because they were just outside, and all of them were inside trying to say goodbye, and all these people didn't get to say goodbye. 20 years later, he was quietly laboring for the Lord, and he died in a Japanese internment camp. He honored the Lord behind the scenes, and he honored the Lord before every person who was there to see him. And God would honor him before men, and God honors him now before the angels in heaven. The third, the third point tonight is this, the invasion of the Lord, word of God and judgment. For honoring his sons above the Lord, Eli would be judged. And unlike Eric Liddell, he would be judged and it would be severe. All the privileges he had and he would now treat so lightly the Lord would judge him for this. In verse 30 we read, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house... And the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God had promised to Aaron's house the privilege to serve in the capacity as priest. But there was an obligation. And the obligation is this. If you honor me, you get to serve. But if you don't honor me, I'll cut you off. And he's, they're going to be cut off. Now, look at verses 31 through 33. This is a little, in, uh, just follow me. I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to unravel it really quickly. Verse 31 and through 33. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength. He's saying this to Eli. I'm going to break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in the house. You will see distress of my dwellings in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. Let me unravel that really quickly. Future judgment's going to come and it's going to come in the days of David down the road at Nob. Now I don't know if you remember the situation that happened at Nob, but David comes, he's running from the green-eyed, jealous King Saul. And David receives from one of Eli's descendants named Ahimelech some bread, some provisions. After he receives these provisions, King Saul shows up and he hears what Ahimelech did. And he called that treasonous and he told all his guards to execute all the priests. And all his guards wouldn't refuse to do it. But there was a man named Doeg, Doeg the Edomite. He struck them all down. 
He struck them all down in the prime of life. Here it is. It's happening just exactly the way the Lord, this man of God, said it would happen. And there was only one man. I think there was, what, 85 that were killed? 85 priests were killed in the prime of life. And there's one man who escaped, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, escaped. In verse 33, it speaks of Eli's descendants dying in the prime of life. One's left. Abiathar is left. And he escapes to David. And he's a priest to David. And he's a priest of David until he supports Adonijah, David's son. Nothing wrong with that so far unless you understand that Adonijah was in opposition to King Solomon, the one that God had chosen to be the next king. And so in 1 Kings 2.27 it says this, So Solomon removed Abiathar, that Eli's descendant, from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord, had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. So once Abiathar is removed from priests, Solomon replaces him with a better priest. Zadok was the better one. He came from a more preeminent family of Aaron. So during the days of Solomon, Abiathar is forced to sit on the sidelines and watch as Zadok and his family begin to be the priestly line. And he's also forced to beg for a little bit of work so that he has enough money to buy some bread. And that's the passage. Now, this is going to take place in the future. This is down farther down the road here in 1 Samuel. But in order for Eli to know that God means business, he's going to give him something that's going to happen in the near future. This is terrible. Both of his sons in verse 34 are going to die on the same day. Hophni and Phinehas, they're going to die. And it's just a matter of time. This is a horrible outcome that comes to a man who honors his sons more than the Lord. Well, finally, as we move to the Lord's Supper, the invasion of the Word of God and stubbornness. Don't you think about what do you think about stubbornness? Most of the time you think about stubbornness as being a sinful thing, right? The Lord is stubborn. He's stubborn in the right way. The word of the Lord comes through the prophet and he teaches that the Lord is stubborn. The Lord is stubborn because he sticks to keeping his word. And in verse 32, do you remember what it says there? It says in verse 32, And you will see distress in my dwelling. And here's this stubbornness about God doing good to Israel. Although good will be done to Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man. So there's some good going to happen in the midst of all this darkness. Verse 35 tells us God will do good to Israel. Verse 35, but I will raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed, talking about walking before my king always. So the Lord's going to raise up a faithful priest and the Lord's going to bless his people and the Lord's going to be stubborn. And most of the time we think about stubbornness, we think about sin, but when we're talking about God being stubborn, we're talking about not sinning. We're talking about somebody who's stubborn and he's going to do the next right thing and he's going to keep all of his promises. And so the Lord raises up Zadok. That's the guy he has to raise up and replace these folks in the time of King Solomon. So this is no less than the invasion of God's word. So into the muck and into the mire of the situation, God brings the word of God. There's light. and He has his light coming into this situation. The, the word of God rehearses grace 
before them, charges them with sin, pronounces horrific judgments upon them. And God says this, if you won't leave in holiness and godliness, I will remove you. I'll cut you off. It's terrible. But there's hope. We're going to see there's hope. Now let's go through the hard part for a second. The invasion of the word of God comes to cut off sin. I want you to think about this. Today, if, if, if I had my way right now, I would like say, let's go to Terry Johnson's church in Savannah, Georgia. They have a high pulpit. And they have a pulpit way up in the sky. And you know what's on top of it? The Bible. And the Bible is supposed to be over all of us. The ministers, the elders, the deacons, and everybody in the congregation. The Word of God is over all of us. And so the Word of God comes over all of us. And for the true church to be preserved, false ministers and officers and false members have to be cut off. Church discipline has to be taken seriously. It's our fifth vow. We are going to submit to the government of the church. We don't like talking about church discipline, and I bet everybody in here could tell me a bad story about it because it's been misapplied throughout the years. But let's talk about it hopefully in the right way. The minister and the elders in the church, as well as the congregation, if we're found delinquent in doctrine or life, if we're found speaking or talking in a way that's er erroneous, or if we're living in a way that's improper or wrong according to the commandments, somebody needs to come to us in love. It's never about harm. I mean, sometimes, you know, if you ever do this, you have to go to somebody and you have to really check your heart and you have to say, I think I sound a little harsh. <laughs> and I need to come and I need to talk to somebody in love. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really off script here, but somebody came to me back in July of 2020 and I just went and begged this person not to commit adultery. It's about restoration. It's never about harm. It's never about hurting anybody. It's the Word of God coming to work against any wrong doctrine or any uh, sinful, wayward living. What happens if we... Do not take this seriously. If the minister is preaching error and, the, and somebody in the congregation is teaching error, what about a person's soul? If a member or officer is sinning, it must be addressed because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Where sin is not going to be corrected and where sin is not judged correctly, then people begin to think that it doesn't matter, that we're not serious about these things. People become cynical about obedience and cynical about the sacrifice of Jesus. You can see that these men disobeyed and what did it what how did they act in front of those sacrifices that pointed to Jesus? Sin left unchecked will be a contagion and it will affect the body of Christ. What happens when the church uh, does deal with sin and a person will not repent? We have the opportunity to suspend a person from the Lord's Supper. And if they still won't repent, we could excommunicate or cut them off from the Lord's Supper. It's a very drastic thing to do this, especially when these are people who have stood in front of us and confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, given yes answers to all the vows. These are people who've sat down with us and eaten and drank with us at the Lord's table. 
It's a difficult thing. We want to do it to show that we honor, listen, honor Jesus Christ more than men. That's the only, that's one of the reasons we do it. One of the main reasons we do it. We do it to protect God's people. We do it to protect the glory of God. We do it with hope that people will repent. It has to be done. The invasion of the word of God not only cuts off ungodly, the ungodly from leadership, but also, here's the good thing, stubbornly promises that God will give us a godly man to preach to us. God did raise up Zadok. And God does have his Samuels in the wings. And God does have men who will stand up and be faithful even today. God helping your minister right in front of you. He will stay faithful. He will raise up shepherds who will study God's word and wrestle with God's word and bring you the word about Jesus Christ every time you come to this building. The Lord raises up men to point you to your final high priest. Your minister is to point out to you that Jesus Christ is the one who brings himself as the sacrifice. The Old Testament guys bring those animals, but Jesus brings his own body and his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the one who doesn't burn incense, but he, his incense is his intercessory prayers at the right hand of the Father all the time. We are to hear from the minister that Jesus is the one who bears us not with beautiful um, stones on a vestment, but us on his heart and on his arm and in our hands. Jesus raises up men to make us understand things are sacred and not common and ordinary. And your ordinary minister right now is going to direct you to Jesus' body and his blood as we talk about what he did on the night he was betrayed. Our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, and he tells us to, to take and eat. He tells us to take and to drink and to remember him. So tonight as we come, uh, we, we have to answer a few questions. What are we doing? And one of the things we're doing is we're commemorating. We're remembering. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But then even more than that, he tells us to commune with him. And when we think about communing with him, what does that mean? Well, when we say, this is my body, Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, we don't believe that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Christ. But we do believe that we're going to participate in the body and in the blood of Jesus Christ in a spiritual way. So today, when Jesus gives this bread and this wine to you through these hands, I want you to see Jesus' hands. And as you eat and as you drink, I want you to think that you are participating in Jesus' body and blood in a mystical way. He's giving you grace. And as you receive it with faith in your heart, you will be strengthened by His grace. This is what we do as we take the Lord's Supper. So are you a member of this church or another church? Have you professed your faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized? 
Do you go to a church where the Word of God invades every part of it? Are you accountable to a session of elders? Well, this table is for you. As we participate, the Apostle of Jesus Christ uh, challenges us to examine our hearts, to eat in a worthy manner. I'm going to say this. Let me tell you how to eat in a worthy manner without going through all my notes because I'm watching time. Let me tell you how to eat in a worthy manner. Um, my little note here says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I what? Cling. <laughs> what am I going to have here? I'm going to have in my hands only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we come... Not because we're so good, but we come worthy because we have Jesus' righteousness in our hands. We come repenting of all our sins and have all our faith in Christ. And we need to remember one more thing. We come loving each other. And good shepherd OPC, we need to love each other. Okay? Let's pray.